everyone, and welcome to Historically Haunted's first episode of 2024. I hope that you all had a fantastic holiday season and that you guys are rested up and ready for a new year ahead. This is my first episode that I am recording inside my new podcast studio. For those of you who don't know, I moved to a new location in November. It was crazy. I tried to move during also being sick with a sinus infection and dealt with my college finals all in the same time, plus the holidays, so it was a little nuts. My 2023 definitely did not end the way I expected it to, but I am totally fine with that because at the end of the day, I now have an office space where I can work and record podcast episodes uninterrupted. And I also took a couple of weeks in January to map out Historically Haunted's future and new episodes that I'm planning. Plus, I'm going to start making some video entries over on my Patreon for Patreon exclusive video bonus episodes. I have already made a bonus episode of video version over on my Patreon page that was about the Gettysburg Hotel and my experience at Strange Escapes. Strange Escapes is like a vacation package deal thing that you can buy. It's run by Amy Bruni, who is a paranormal investigator. You might know her from uh, TV shows like um, the original Ghost Hunters or Taps as it originally started as. And then she also now is in this other show called Kindred Spirits with Adam Barry. He was also there. So I got to meet them on this Strange Escapes event. It was really cool. I got to go to a bunch of different paranormal lectures. We got to go on some ghost tours. We got to go on some ghost hunts and we got a battlefield tour all a part of the package deal that we went to. This whole event took place inside the historic historic and famous Gettysburg Hotel, and I actually got to stay there. So if you want to see some video version of that, I have that all on my Patreon. I talk about the history of the hotel that I stayed in, plus I talk about some exclusive paranormal things that happened to me while I was on my trip. If you still want to learn about Strange Escapes without signing up for Patreon, I actually also made a blog about it on my website. Um, The blog link is down below in the show notes. I broke it down while I did not talk about my paranormal experiences or that much history about the hotel because I reserved all that for an exclusive for my Patreons. I still broke down the whole Strange Escapes event if I thought it was worth it, which spoiler alert, I did. I loved every second of it and also some other interesting things that I learned while I was on my trip. And also something crazy happened with this. Uh, Amy Bruni herself somehow found my blog. I don't know if somebody sent it to her or what, but she actually gave me a shout out thank you on her Instagram page, which like I totally fangirled and freaked out and thought that was super nice of her. So um, I know she's not listening, but I just wanted to say out loud, thank you so much, Amy, for that. Um, that it just shocked the heck out of me. I was never expecting anything like that. So thank you so much. So if you want to read that blog, go ahead and go down to the link in the show notes and that'll take you directly to that blog page on my website. And while you're there, think about signing up for the newsletter because um, I keep up with new blogs that I post with a newsletter. And once in a while, I even put in a free download or two. Okay, that's it for all the announcements. Thanks for listening to that. I made that as short as possible possible. Today's episode is a listener suggestion from David, and it's going to be about Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston, South Carolina is a very important city in American history. So many things had happened here that I did the best I could to cover as much as possible. So if I missed anything, please go down to all my sources at the bottom of the show notes to learn even more because it was impossible to put everything in. So if you would like to learn more, check out all the sources. You can never learn too much history. Okay, let's get the disclaimers out of the way and get this episode started. After, of course, our monstrous moment. 
If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon, please check out the link to my page down below in the show notes. For just a dollar a month, you can access bonus episodes that I make when I have extra time, sneak peeks on current projects, and a thank you card with a logo sticker in the mail after your first monthly payment. Leaving a written review on iTunes or a starred review on Spotify is a quick and free way to help support the show. The more reviews I receive, it will help the show pop up when other people are searching for a new paranormal podcast to try. And a huge thank you to all of you who have already left reviews. The best way to stay up to date with the show and to learn about more historically haunted announcements is to follow me on Instagram. To find my page, just type in historically underscore haunted and look for our happy ghost with the lantern. Also, don't forget to check out my official historically haunted website, historicallyhauntedpodcast.com. Here you can learn more about me and my show. Also, check out my blog posts as well as listen to new episodes. You can also find a link to my merchandise store. If you would like to learn more about today's location, I encourage you to go down to the bottom of my show notes for all of my sources. Here you can find even more information, history, and sometimes ghost stories than I had time to cover in today's episode. And just a quick reminder that my show might not be suitable for all audiences. I often cover gory, disturbing, sensitive, and adult topics. And while the ghost stories I tell might be scary, sometimes the true history is more terrifying than the paranormal claims. Listener's discretion is is advised. It is time for our first Monsters Moment of 2024, and today we will be learning about the legend of the Lizard Man. On a dark summer's night on June 29, 1988, a 17-year-old teenager named Christopher Davis was driving home from his summer job at a restaurant in Bishopsville, South Carolina. It was a late night for Christopher because he had had the closing shift. Around 2 a.m., he was driving past Scape Ore Swamp on a deserted stretch of dark highway when he suddenly got a flat tire. Not wanting to stick around the creepy swamp late at night, he worked on changing the tire as quickly as possible. As he worked, he felt an increasing sense of being watched and uneasiness. It was then, out of the dim glow of the headlights, that he saw something moving in the bushes near the edge of the swamp. This made him quicken his pace, and as he was finishing changing the tire, he looked up to see what he described as a bipedal humanoid-looking creature emerge from the shadows of the swamp. Whatever this was, it had dark green scaly skin, stood about seven feet tall on hind legs, had long claws for hands, and his eyes were glowing red. It began to slowly walk toward Christopher, who, after had been frozen for a few seconds, snapped out of it. He panicked and scrambled to get in his car. He turned on the engine, put his foot on the gas, and tried to get out of there as quickly as possible. But the creature gave chase. As Christopher began to drive faster, the creature began running to keep up. It managed to grab a hold of his car, climb onto the roof, and started slashing at the top of the car roof, as if it was trying to cut a hole in the top. Thinking fast, Christopher slammed on his brakes, making the creature fly off the car, over the hood, and onto the street. This gave Christopher enough time to escape. When Christopher got home, he was in a panic, and he told his family what had happened. They encouraged him to go to the police to tell them about his scary encounter. 
He even claimed that you could see scratch marks on his car from where the creature had been trying to hang on during the chase. Local newspapers quickly picked up this story, and the name The Lizard Man was given to this terrifying monster. This story spread like wildfire throughout Lee County and beyond. Not long after the story made its rounds, other people began calling in with claims saying that they too saw The Lizard Man in or near Scape or Swamp. A few sightings were also called in from neighboring counties of Sumter and Kershaw. The story was compelling enough to bring in many cryptozoologist experts and paranormal enthusiasts. They came to the area in search of the Lizard Man of South Carolina. Many of these sightings are described close to the same as Christopher's original account, but some of these claims say that the creature had a large tail, while others say that he had everything else including the tail, but they, he also let out a loud, angry growl when spotted. In the summer and fall of 1988, local law enforcement reportedly investigated several cars that were damaged near Scape or Swamp. These cars had strange slash marks on them and even looked like long talons had left big holes on the sides of cars. Local news stations and national news began to pick up the story and the legend of the lizard man grew. At this time, many chalked up the scratch marks to pranksters or local wildlife, while others thought that there could be something to this legend. Over the years, the legend of the Lizard Man has become a huge part in South Carolina folklore. People still claim to have run-ins with this supposed monster, and some claim that they have found tracks in the swamp he left behind. Teenagers like to go out looking for the Lizard Man, and some have even confessed to making fake tracks to scare people. There have also been photos and videos over the years of people claiming that this is proof that the Lizard Man is living in Scape or Swamp, but the authenticity can never be proven, and some videos are so bad that you can tell that they're a hoax. Regardless of what people think, the Lizard Man has remained an important part of South Carolina folklore since its first sighting. If you're ever brave enough to drive through Scape or Swamp in the dead of night, make sure that you have a full tank of gas and watch out for any sharp objects on the road. You don't want to have to be forced to pull over and have a run-in with the Lizard Man. Charleston, South Carolina is a beautifully preserved city, dripping with history. From its cobblestone streets and moss-covered walkways to its famous Rainbow Row, much has changed since the town began in 1670. Charleston was not only the location of important moments in Revolutionary War history, but it is also the location of the first shots fired of the Civil War. The city and its people have survived fires, hurricanes, tornadoes, wars, and even earthquakes. Let's dive into the rich history of this amazing city to learn all we can about what makes Charleston one of the most popular tourist destinations and culturally important cities in the South. From the very beginning, Charleston was an important port city. 
1663, King Charles II gifted eight of his largest supporters land located in the province of Carolina in the New World. Six years later, on August 17, 1669, Captain Joseph West was commissioned to lead three ships to the New World with the goal of colonizing more of the Carolina territory. These ships were named the Carolina, the Port Royal, and the Albemarle. Along the way, the fleet made a quick stop at the Irish coastline to try to convince more people to join them. No one agreed to go with them, and some potential colonists even had second thoughts and decided to disembark. This dropped the number of people to around 150 English colonists. Now keep in mind that the official number of people who made the voyage was greater than that, but they were not officially recorded. This is because many of the colonists brought their enslaved and indentured servants with them, and there's no good records of them. For those who decided to disembark in Ireland, this would prove to be a good choice because this trip would be anything but easy. As the fleet reached Barbados, the Albemarle was destroyed during a violent storm. After losing one of their ships, what was left of the fleet reached Bridgetown in Barbados. At the time, Bridgetown was the most thriving British colony due to its large sugar industry. A new ship was chartered called the Three Brothers and the group set back on their way. As they reached Bermuda, the Port Royal was damaged and the Carolina and the Three Brothers continued on to the New World. As they reached the New World, the fleet was hit yet again by a bad storm, this time separating the two ships. With no way to locate one another, they both carried on with the three brothers sailing up to Virginia and in April of 1670, the Carolina arrived on the shores of what is now South Carolina. They first stopped at Port Royal Harbor to explore the area. They decided that this was not a good location to set up a new settlement due to it being too exposed to Spanish and local indigenous attacks. So they moved to a new location up the river on the West Bank that offered more protection and better land for farming. Now I have never been to Charleston myself and the history is a little bit confusing here, but from what I could understand and find online, this first area that they moved to on the West Bank was also not the best location. So by 1680, they moved across the river to the location that Charleston is today. And this location is on the Charleston Harbor, where the Cooper River and the Ashley River come together. After the final move, they began setting up a plantation-style economy modeled after the one in Barbados. Once they established their first crops of indigo and rice, they began receiving shipments of more indentured servants and enslaved people from the Barbados colonies. From this plantation grew a town that they named Charlestown. Charlestown had almost the same layout as Bridgetown in Barbados. It was laid out like a grid pattern with cobblestone streets lined with crepe myrtle trees. The colonial style houses were painted bright pastel colors and by the end of 1680, the population had just about 1,000 people living in Charlestown. Even though their town was in a better defensive position, it did not fully stop attacks from happening. The town faced attacks from the French and Spanish, some local indigenous tribes, and even pirates. To help give some added protection, they had a wall built around the city. As time marched on, Charlestown experienced rapid growth, quickly becoming a successful seaport. By 1740, the city was exporting many expensive goods to England, like rice, indigo, deerskins, and later cotton. Ships that came into port would bring English luxuries, enslaved Africans, and food not found in the New World. Because of the port's strong connection to importing English goods, Charlestown earned the nickname Little London.
By 1770, animosity between the colonists and the king came to a head. The colonists were upset because they did not have representation in the British Parliament, and the king was forcing taxes upon them to pay for the French and Indian War. Protests began all over the 13 colonies, and distrust grew between the people who supported the monarchy and the ones who wanted independence. After the Boston Tea Party in early December 1773, the British authorities were afraid that the tea in Charlestown would end up in the bay as well. The authorities seized the tea and locked it up in the cellars of the Exchange and Customs House. In 1774, at the very same Exchange and Customs House, South Carolina elected their delegates to the Continental Congress and declared their independence from the crown on the steps of the building. Resentment continued to build until the Revolutionary War began on April 19, 1775, when the shot heard around the world occurred in Lexington, Massachusetts. During the American Revolutionary War, Charlestown was attacked twice. The first attack came in 1776 by the British, who were unable to take the fort on nearby Sullivan's Island. This battle would prove to be the first major American victory of the war. In 1778, the British would try again, this time ending in a successful British victory. The British took control and occupied Charlestown until December 14, 1782, near the end of the war. The Revolutionary War officially ended with an American victory on September 3, 1783. Shortly after America won its independence, the people of Charlestown wanted to rid themselves of any connections to England. So they decided to officially change their name from Charlestown to Charleston. On May 23, 1788, South Carolina became an official state. By the late 1700s, Charleston had become one of the most important seaports for the United States economy. But something even bigger was coming that would change the course of history and propel the Union into a civil war. In 1793, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. The cotton gin was a machine that separated the seed from the cotton fibers much faster than by hand. This led to cotton being produced at faster rates than ever before, increasing the need to grow more cotton. Cotton became one of the most important and lucrative Southern crops, and the need for enslaved workers greatly increased. This solidified the South's economic dependence on slavery. And just to get a better idea on how much the cotton gin made slavery explode in the United States, here are some numbers. And remember, up until this point, cotton was kind was a crop, but it wasn't as big and lucrative as it quickly became after the cotton gin was invented. So in 1790, there were six slave states in the Union, but by 1860, that number grew to 15. The annual cotton production grew from just about 2,000 bales to 4,800,000 bales. The enslaved population grew from roughly 790,000 to 4 million, and 1 million enslaved people were sold from the North and forcibly taken from their families to go work in the Deep South on cotton plantations. This was one of the largest forced migrations to happen in the U.S. With the vast influx of enslaved Africans needed for cotton plantations, Charleston became the largest slave port in the United States. For a time, enslaved people were actually sold on the street until that became illegal. It was decided that all buying and selling of humans would be conducted inside the old slave market building. Enslaved people were not only sent to plantations throughout the South, but they also worked in the city of Charleston itself, either for businesses or in homes as domestic servants. Many were also put to work as skilled laborers building to expand the city of Charleston.
By the mid-1800s, tension between the North and the South were rising. A growing abolitionist movement in the North was becoming more popular, and the fear of losing their plantation economy was building in the South. When Abraham Lincoln won the Republican ticket while openly supporting the abolitionist movement, the South saw this as a threat, vowing to secede from the Union if he won the presidency to keep their slavery-dependent economy intact. After Abraham Lincoln won the presidential election, the Southern states officially began seceding from the Union, with South Carolina being the first to do so on December 20, 1860, earning it the nickname the Candle of the Confederacy. The new Confederate Army began to seize and occupy important federal buildings and forts throughout the South. Ninety Union troops under the command of Major Anderson were already stationed at Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island in Charleston Harbor. However, the cannons that were all built in the fort were facing out to sea, leaving too much exposure for a possible land attack. Six days after South Carolina seceded from the Union, Major Anderson and his small garrison of 90 men secretly evacuated to Fort Sumter under the cover of darkness. Fort Sumter was a large brick fort located on a man-made island in the center of Charleston Harbor, and it was heavily fortified. Even though it was only 90% complete, it was still the best defensive fort in the area. By April 4, 1861, the fort was running low on supplies, and President Abraham Lincoln sent word to the Southern delegates that the Union Army was going to send an unarmed ship to supply the fort. But the Confederates refused, and as the supply ship entered the harbor, the Confederates opened fire on the ship, forcing it to turn back. On April 9th, Confederate President Jefferson Davis and the Confederate cabinet voted to seize the fort. Davis then ordered Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard to take the fort. On April 12, 1861, Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, forcing Major Anderson to surrender a few days later. This sparked the beginning of the American Civil War that would prove to become one of the bloodiest conflicts in American history. The war dragged on for four long, hard years, leaving an estimated 620,000 Union and Confederate soldiers dead, and about half of them were never identified. On top of the death of soldiers, an estimated civilian death was around 50,000. Many died from epidemic outbreaks, being displaced, or getting caught up in crossfire. There are many historians out there that think that the civilian death number is much higher, not to mention that near the end of the war, many enslaved people were killed, and they were never included, and there were no records about them. During the war, on December 11, 1861, a fire ravaged the city, burning over 540 acres, and destroyed an estimated 600 to 1,000 buildings. People fled the city fearing an impending Union attack, but still to this day, no one knows how this fire got started. After the Union lost Fort Sumter, the Navy set up a blockade of Charleston Harbor to keep fresh supplies from getting in. The Union Army did return in April of 1663, attempting to reclaim the city. This turned into a 587-day siege, with cannon fire raining down on the already fire-ravaged city.
By the time the Civil War ended with a Union victory in 1865, the war had crippled the Southern economy and left many major cities in shambles and thousands homeless. Charleston was among one of the cities that was heavily damaged. With many of its structures that were left standing, nothing more than burnt out shells and crumbling walls. The Reconstruction Era began, and this was a turbulent time in American history. The Reconstruction Era refers to the time period immediately following the Civil War from 1865 to 1877. The goal of Reconstruction was to rebuild and reunite the country and aim to address the aftermath of the Civil War, also ensuring the rights of newly freed individuals and rebuild the Southern states. This, of course, did not go as planned and brought the rise of white supremacy organizations such as the Ku Klux Klan. As soon as the Reconstruction era ended and the U.S. Army troops pulled out of occupied territories in 1877, Southern states quickly passed Jim Crow laws, leading to even more years of oppression and hard work from civil rights activists to end such laws and fight against segregation and racist ideology. This is something that we are still fighting to this very day. The city of Charleston, South Carolina was able to recover from the Civil War. And while much of the city was burnt down and ravaged by cannon fire, many historic buildings luckily survived and they still stand today. However, in 1886, one of the largest recorded earthquakes in American history hit the South, leaving many dead and thousands homeless. We will never know the exact strength of this quake due to not having a Richter scale back then, but historians think that this quake could have been anywhere between a 6.0 and a 7.0. The earthquake was felt over 2.5 million square miles, and reports of the shaking were felt as far away as Cuba, New York City, Bermuda, and even up the Mississippi River. The shaking caused brick buildings to crumble, houses to collapse, and fires started, devastating many cities in the South that had just rebuilt from the Civil War. In Charleston, the quake left 2,000 buildings damaged, and more than 100 buildings were deemed unsafe and had to be torn down. A total of 110 people died, and many thought that this quake was the end of the world. By the turn of the century, the city was able to rebuild and become an important cultural center. Charleston has many nicknames, but one of them is the Holy City due to its vast number of churches and it is known for its religious tolerance. The city has 400 places of worship and you can see church steeples in all directions throughout the city. Charleston also played an important role in the civil rights movement, and it's on the United States Civil Rights Trail, and I have a link to that down below. African Americans banded together to boycott segregated establishments, petitioned for equal rights protections, filed lawsuits against establishments for not following the law of equal rights, and had voter registration drives. They also helped organize labor strikes. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1960. 
praising local leaders for their efforts in fighting for equality. One year later, Charleston Public Schools became the first in the state to be forced to adhere to the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 to desegregate their public schools. During the 70s and 80s, Charleston started to push its tourism industry. But on the evening of September 21st, 1989, one of the most famous hurricanes, Hurricane Hugo, slammed into the Charleston coastline with 135 mile per hour winds and near midnight, a wall of storm surge ranging 12 to 17 feet high washed over Fort Sumter and rushed into the city. The hurricane damaged around 10,000 homes and caused $3 billion in damages. The city yet again had to rebuild, but it managed to keep all of its important historical structures. During the 1990s and early 2000s, Charleston worked to keep up with modern trends in tech, but not lose its historical heritage. It started to market itself as a place where the past and the present meet and used its unique picturesque historical areas to bring in more tourism. In 2015, something horrible happened at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church that shocked not just Charleston, but the whole country. In the very church that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at 62 years ago, a shooting known as the Charleston Church Massacre occurred on June 17th, 2015. Now, I'm not going to say the offender's name on my show because I do not want to give him the time of day. You can look that up for yourself if you would like, but I did want to talk about this because you can't really talk about the history of Charleston without talking about this horrible event. But on June 17th, 2015, a white 21-year-old male entered the church during an evening Bible study and after it was over, opened fire on the congregation, killing nine people. The offender was not only screaming out racial slurs and other white supremacy rhetoric while he did this, but he also posted a manifesto online, leaving no doubt that this was in fact a hate crime. The man was arrested the next day after fleeing the scene and this shooting was a really sad day for Charleston, and many people showed up in support of the church and its members. It was a major wake-up call for many across the country, reminding us all that although we've come a really long way in the fight for equality, we still have a long way to go. As much as I hate talking about this kind of thing, I have to. It's history, and it happened in Charleston, so I felt like I could not talk about the city without covering this horrible event. Today, Charleston is famous for its historic district, cobblestone streets, carriage rides, restaurants, and and its proximity to beautiful beaches. A famous tourist destination is Rainbow Row, located in the center of Charleston's historic district. Rainbow Row is a series of 13 colonial townhouses that were built in the late 1700s, with each house painted a different pastel color. Rainbow Row was originally the center of commerce and trade, and many of the homes were used as shops and warehouses. The homes fell into disrepair in the early 1900s, but they were saved by local preservationist Susan Frost. These houses are now a combination of shops, restaurants, and homes. The city is full of historic landmarks, including its pineapple fountain, museums, gardens, plantations, and Charleston's city market. Founded in the 1790s, it is one of the oldest public markets still in operation in the United States. The city of Charleston is famous for something else its ghosts. With the city's colorful history and historic preservation, it's no wonder that many ghost stories have been around since before the Civil War. It is a perfect place for spirits to wander down cobblestone streets, peek down at tourists from upper story windows, or walk through walls in colonial buildings.
first haunted location is the Dock Street Theater, which, according to legend, has a famous ghost who met an electrifying end. The Dock Street Theater was built on the corner of Church Street and Dock Street in 1736, and it's an important building in American theater history. The structure was the first ever to be created solely for the purpose of being a theater. Up until this point, any stage productions held in America had been done in barns, bars, and churches. The theater burnt down in 1740, but it was rebuilt, and by 1809, the building was transformed into the Planters Hotel. After the Civil War, the hotel was turned into a boarding house for a while, but by 1915, it fell into disrepair. In 1935, the city of Charleston took over the building, and with the helps of the Depression-era Works Progress Administration Project, they were able to restore it to its former glory of an 18th century English theater. The grand opening of this theater was held in 1937, and it holds theater productions to this day. While it's a popular spot for those who love the arts, it is also famous for its residence ghost, the woman in red. According to legend, the woman in red is the ghost of Nettie Dickerson, who came to Charleston to work at St. Philip's Church in hopes of finding a church-going man and move her way up the town's strict social ladder. But all she found was hypocrisy and judgment from the high society elites that she desperately wanted to be a part of. Due to her scandalous age of being in her early 20s with no husband, she had been considered a spinster by the town's elites and shunned. And that was sarcasm, by the way, in case you couldn't tell. When Nettie turned 25, she was over the church and filled with bitter resentment. She left and found another way to mingle with high-end clients, working as a prostitute across the street from the church at the Planters Hotel. It was here that she plotted her revenge. As high-end clients met with her, she saved up all her money to become wealthy enough to purchase a gorgeous red dress from the most high-end shop in town. The next Sunday, dressed in this red dress, she went back to the church and confronted all of the wives of the men that she had slept with at the Planters Hotel. This would prove to be a big mistake because the men did not like their business being spread around, especially not in church and to their wives' face. So soon, men stopped being her clients. She quickly became penniless and one day, she snapped. With a bad storm rolling in the distance, she went up to the balcony of the hotel and began screaming obscenities about the Charleston elite and at the church. A pastor who still cared for her ran over to the hotel to try to calm her down. As the pastor tried to reason with her, she screamed out one final line of, you cannot save me, when out of nowhere, a bolt of lightning struck her dead, and Nettie was last seen hanging onto the iron balcony motionless. Ever since that fateful day, her ghost has been seen wandering the building in a red dress. While we will never know if the story is true or not, it does make for a good legend. And there have been many paranormal reports of people claiming to see a woman in red. People say that they see a wide-eyed woman dressed in a red dress walking through walls or standing in one place, staring angrily at them. People have also experienced something shocking. They witness her walking down hallways, but they only see her from the knees up because it's believed that she is walking on the old hotel's floorboards that are no longer there. Many staff members and actors have also had strange experiences. One morning, an actor named Lee Lewis came in for rehearsals around 10 o'clock in the morning. He sat down in row E101, and while he was looking over his script, 
he thought he heard someone in the lobby. As he turned to look behind him, he saw someone walking across the stage in the corner of his eye. When he did a double take, he saw nothing there. He thought that it was the stage manager who ran backstage really quick, so he went to investigate and found no one back there. He was about to go back and sit down when he suddenly heard laughter coming from the green room. He went into the room to say good morning to what he thought was still the stage manager, and he found the room completely empty. When he tried the back doors, he found them locked. And that is when he realized that there was no way someone could have snuck out of the room because he would have seen them come out of the green room's main doors. And he would have heard someone unlocking, closing, and then relocking the back doors. He was all alone in the theater, and he believed that this was his first run-in with Nettie. Our next location is 1837 Bed and Breakfast. Sadly, this B&B is closed now and I'm unsure if it will ever reopen. But before its closure, this place had a lot of reports of strange paranormal activity. The home was built in 1837 and owned by Henry Coba. Henry was a wealthy planter and a slave owner and the house changed many times over the years until becoming an official B&B in the 1980s. Ever since it opened as a bed and breakfast, guests started experiencing some strange paranormal events that many would consider poltergeist in nature. Some have linked this paranormal activity to a young boy named George. The story goes that George lived with his enslaved parents on the third floor working as a house servant. During the Civil War, when Henry Coba's plantation fell into debt, Henry sold George's parents, forcibly separating the family. George missed them terribly, and because he was only a child, George didn't understand what really happened to his parents. Not long after this, he ran away to try to find his parents. He discovered a slave ship docked in the harbor and thought that that's where his parents could be. So he tried to swim to the ship and he tragically drowned. Ever since then, the house, now the B&B, has experienced poltergeist activity. Many think that George's ghost came back to the only place that he knew and sadly, he's still looking for his parents. Guests have reported hearing a child running through the halls at night and slamming doors. When guests open the door to see what all the noise is about, they find nothing there, but they do hear childlike laughter coming from from the empty hallway. George also enjoys moving objects, turning off lights, shifting tables, and rocking empty rocking chairs. His most famous move is shaking the beds of sleeping guests. Some guests who feel the shaking thought that there was an earthquake going on and quickly ran out of the building to discover that just their bed was shaking on its own. For 15 years, paranormal experiences had been recorded by guests in journals left in each room. The staff who worked at the bed and breakfast did not seem to be afraid of George. Actually, many of them seemed to find his presence almost comforting because while George likes to move objects, he does not have a menacing presence at all. According to some staff members, if they politely ask George to stop messing with people's things, he will. I have no idea what will happen to this building now that it's permanently closed, but I hope whoever owns it next will give George a nice welcome and make him feel comfortable living there. Not all ghosts have to be scary. In fact, some ghosts can actually be animals, just like at our next location, Pugin's Porch. Coogan's Porch is a famously haunted restaurant in Charleston with two different types of ghosts attached to the building. Pugin's Porch is a Victorian-style home located at 72 Queen Street and was built in 1888. 
The building was predominantly residential until it opened as a restaurant in 1976. The restaurant got its name from the local street dog named Pugin. Pugin did not really belong to anyone, but he was well known for being a porch dog because he would go around the neighborhood each day begging for scraps. Once he was full, he would take a nap on someone's porch, but his favorite porch was the house that would soon become a restaurant. The owners named the restaurant Pugin's Porch in his honor, and Pugin continued to greet guests until he passed away in 1979 of natural causes. The restaurant is still going strong, and some even think that Pugin the Friendly Pooch still comes to visit. Many staff members and guests have claimed to hear a dog barking and scratching at the front door, only to open it to find the porch empty. Others have seen him lounging in his favorite sunny spot on the porch, only to take a double take and see nothing there. If you ever go eat here, keep an eye out for Zoe. Zoe is the most famous ghost at this restaurant. Many think that she is the ghost of a woman who lived in the home in the late 18, early 1900s. Zoe was known around town for being a spinster because she had given up on love and chose to remain a working teacher. Back then, teachers were not allowed to date or get married. So maybe Zoe just liked her job in independence, but regardless as to why she never got married, her only friend was her sister, Lizzie, who was also not married. The two of them lived in the home together until Lizzie passed away. Zoe became depressed without her sister and her best friend, and she passed away nine years later. Ever since her death, Zoe has been seen wandering around the house. Many have seen her dressed in all black, sitting at one of the restaurant tables until she slowly fades away into a fine mist. Staff members have also seen her walking past open doorways, and some have heard her ghostly footsteps when the restaurant is empty. One of the more unsettling instances happened to the head chef, Isaac. Isaac had worked in the building for 25 years at the time of this interview, and I have a link to this video down below. I believe it was made in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, but I have a link to it, so go check it out for yourself. But Isaac was the first to arrive early in the morning to set up for the day ahead. When he went into the kitchen, he poured himself a cup of coffee just like he did every morning that he worked. As he walked into the dining room area, he realized that he did not unlock the back door for the morning delivery. So he set his cup of coffee down on the main staircase and went to the back to let in the delivery man. After a few minutes of chatting with the driver, he returned to the stairs to grab that cup of coffee that he left behind only to find it was missing. Puzzled, Isaac looked around the area for his cup but found nothing. The driver was done unloading, so he walked him out the back door and locked it behind him. And then he went back to the kitchen to pour himself a new cup of coffee. He was wondering if he had imagined the whole thing. But as he passed by the staircase, he saw that cup of coffee was sitting on the original steps where he had left it. He went to pick it up and he saw a red lipstick stain left behind. This spooked him so much that he ran outside and waited for another staff member to get there so he would not be alone in the restaurant. While Isaac had never seen Zoe in person, he believes that she was the one who had moved the cup, took a sip of it, and put it back. A couple months later, he had another strange experience inside the kitchen. While he was bending down to grab some pots and pans from a lower cabinet, he suddenly felt some kind of fabric or force brush by him, and he thought this could have been Zoe walking by him in her Victorian-style dress. Other staff members who work in the restaurant have experienced some weird things that many attribute to Zoe. Objects move on their own, people feel random cold spots throughout the building, and some have even seen Zoe's reflection in the mirror staring back at them. The owner of the restaurant, Bobby Ball, also has her own spooky story. One time, she was all alone locking up for the night, when suddenly a wooden stool was knocked to the ground. 
Then a door in that same room started to open and slam over and over again. This scared her so much that she hurriedly locked the front door and left. Another strange occurrence happened when a pastry chef was alone working on the next day's desserts. She was listening to the radio and singing along when she suddenly heard a large clatter come from upstairs. It was loud enough to drown out her radio. The sound made her jump and she turned it off. After a few moments of ringing silence, she mustered up enough courage to go investigate. She looked around the whole house and found it empty and the door alarms had not gone off. Trying to ignore what she just heard, she went back into the kitchen and turned on the radio. A little while later, her favorite song came on and she started singing aloud to it. Halfway through the song, she suddenly heard another woman's voice singing with her. Thinking it was a coworker who had been in the house playing a prank on her this whole time, she turned around to confront them and found no one there, yet the voice persisted. Once she turned off the radio, dead silence met her ears. Many passers-by have also claimed to see Zoe staring at them from an upper story window. The cops have actually been called many times because people reported seeing a woman on the second floor waving at them after hours. When the police show up to do a business check, they find no one inside, and the alarm had never been activated. Up next is the Old Exchange House Customs and Immigration Authority building. This building had many different purposes over the years, but it's most famous as the place that entertained President George Washington during his tour of the South. Completed in 1771, it was used for commercial exchange, customs house, post office, city hall, and military headquarters. While upstairs was a place for important meetings and business, downstairs had a dungeon. Every town needs a jail, and Charleston, while today is known for its historical charm, it can be easy to forget that it used to be a rough-and-tumble port city. Charleston had a high crime rate filled with brothels and saloons. The city dealt with things like outlaws, prostitutes, pirates, and duels, so it needed a place to house convicted criminals. A dungeon was constructed under the old Exchange House building, and it was used as the town's first jail. Today, it is a historical site that gives tours, and many guests have reported some strange occurrences. The most famous spirit is Isaac Hayne. Isaac owned three plantations outside of the city, but he was a patriot. During the Revolutionary War and the British occupation of Charlestown, his wife and two children became gravely ill, and he needed to travel into the city for medicine. However, to enter the city, however, to enter the city, the British made him swear allegiance to the crown and promise that he would not take up arms against the king. He did so, but his wife and children died regardless of the medicine he received for them. Even though he swore an oath to the British, he still continued to fight for the Patriot Army, but he was captured a year later by British soldiers and was arrested and thrown in the jail of the old exchange house. The British were determined to make an example out of Isaac and gave him no trial and quickly found him guilty of treason. He was executed by hanging and the whole town turned up to watch. Many believe that Isaac's ghost still haunts the old exchange building, especially down in the dungeon area. People have reportedly seen his ghost wandering around. People who go on tour in this building have felt random cold spots heard footsteps, and have caught strange anomalies on film. Isaac is described as a mournful spirit, still heartbroken that all the risks he took still could not save his family.
If you are looking for a spooky paranormal experience with many different ghosts, look no further than the Battery Carriage House Inn. This five-story mansion was built in 1843. When the Civil War broke out, the house was abandoned because it was close to Charleston's defensive lines. The house endured a lot of damage from various battles, and after the war ended, it needed extensive repairs. In 1870, it was sold to Union Colonel Richard Lathers. Lathers was a Southern millionaire who fought for the Union Army. And with buying the property, he hoped to restore the house to its former glory while also burying the hatchet with his new neighbors. The remodel cost him $10,000, but everyone in town thought of him as a Southern traitor. And the hatred toward him was so strong that he decided to sell the mansion in 1874. Andrew Simmons bought the property next, and he was a Reconstruction-era banker. Throughout the years, the house was passed through the family line. And in 1920 and early 1930s, the house was known for throwing wild parties which included Ladies of the Night. The home eventually fell into disrepair and Hurricane Hugo damaged it even more. Luckily, Andrew Simmons' great-great-grandson Drayton and his wife Katie Hassett decided to save the old home in 1992 and restored it back to its former glory, and they opened it as an inn. As soon as they started working on the house, Andrew and Kate began to notice that the spirits in this home were not eager to rest. Back before the neighborhood was built, authorities used to hang captured pirates from trees in the area, and during the Civil War, many soldiers passed away of gruesome injuries. Plus, Charleston had went through many different yellow fever outbreaks in the past, so it can be hard to know who these ghosts are. There is one ghost with the nickname The Friendly Gentleman, who haunts room number 10. But the term friendly is used quite loosely here. They call him this because he is friendly with the ladies, if you know what I mean. He enjoys climbing into bed with women. Many guests have felt him get into bed with them in the middle of the night. When they react or normally scream, he gets up, out of bed, bows to them, and then walks away, walking straight through the door without opening it. Some think this could be the ghost of a man who jumped to his death from the roof of the building in 1904 while others think that this could have been the original owner, Andrew, who died from a broken heart. Many think that he is still searching for love. In room number three, there is a strange occurrence of a ball of light that shifts into different shapes and sizes as it floats around the room. One guest turned off his cell phone before going to bed, only to be woken up around three in the morning with his phone playing music at the top of its volume. After investigating, he realized it was an app that he doesn't use that often. Not only that, but a bunch of random apps were open, almost as if someone was playing with the phone that should not have only been turned off but it should have been locked. People who have stayed in room three have also been woken up to the sound of fast-paced dripping water. Upon entering the bathroom to investigate, the sound stops and everything is dry. One night, room number eight had a couple staying in it who were split on ghosts. The wife believed in ghosts and the husband did not. One night stay in this hotel turned the skeptic into a believer. In the middle of the night, the man awoke with a strange feeling of uneasiness. He tried to go back to sleep and ignore it when suddenly a chair was thrown against the wall and he heard a toilet seat in the bathroom slammed shut. His wife grabbed her camera that was next to their bed and began taking pictures of the room. When they looked back at the images, one of the photos caught an outline of a torso standing in the courtyard looking at the door to their room. This torso is the most seen and scariest ghost in the building. No one knows who or what this entity is, but there are many stories and theories to what it could be. Some think that he's the spirit of a Confederate soldier who died not far away from the property. He could have been badly disfigured and after he passed away, 
away, he now haunts the nearest building that he died next to. While others think that he could be what's left of a hanging pirate's body that used to hang from the trees. Whatever it is, this strange apparition has been seen many times in room number eight. It floats above sleeping guests, appears at the foots of their bed, and has been caught on camera. A floating torso is definitely one of the more disturbing apparitions I've ever heard of. Our last haunted location for this episode is Fort Sumter. After the War of 1812, the United States Navy realized that there were several major weaknesses in the American coastal defense system. Congress and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers planned to build around 200 new permanent fortifications, mainly along the Atlantic and Gulf coastline from Maine to Louisiana. Over 40 of these fortifications were built before construction had to be halted due to the Civil War. Charleston Harbor was put on the most vulnerable for attack list, so it received one of these new forts early in the process. The construction of the man-made island in the middle of Charleston Harbor began in 1829, but it ran into a lot of different setbacks, and by the outbreak of the Civil War, it was only 90% complete. As we learned in the history portion of this episode, the first shots of the Civil War were fired here on April 12, 1861 at 4.30 a.m. While the Confederate cannon barrage caused heavy damage to the fort, there were no casualties from this first battle. Major Anderson and his garrison were able to safely evacuate on April 14th 1861. A few years later, however, it would be a different story. After the Union troops left the fort, it fell under Confederate occupation. The soldiers put a large number of enslaved laborers to work to rebuild the walls and dig out bomb proofs. And a bomb proof is a chamber designed to give protection from heavy shelling. These men were forced to work day and night to get the fort ready for another attack that was sure to come. A few years later, on August 12, 1863, an 18-month-long Union Union bombardment began. The fort was under direct fire for a total of 280 days, with more than 46,000 projectiles being fired at the fort directly. By this time, the war was not going well for the Confederates, who were forced to ship out soldiers from other forts to fight on the front lines. This left them easy targets when the Union troops began to march upon fallen lines. By the time the Charleston bombardment began, the fort only had about 350 soldiers left and 150 enslaved labor were still living on the island. They were also low on supplies and ammunition, for those two had to be sent out to the front lines. After the 18-month-long siege ended, 52 Confederates were killed and 267 of them were wounded. A large number of unidentified enslaved laborers were also killed, but they were never recorded. After the war, the fort was left in shambles and it was not used for much while the country tried to rebuild. In the 1880s, it was used as a lighthouse, but when the Spanish-American War began in 1898, it was reconstructed to be used as a fortress once again. It also saw service during World War I and World War II. In 1948, Fort Sumner was was decommissioned and turned over to the National Park Service as a National Historic Site. Today, you can take a ferry over to the island and tour the fort. 
It welcomes 750,000 visitors each year, and many people from staff members to guests have witnessed some really spooky things. One of the more famous ghosts on the island is Daniel Hoff. If you ever see the ghost of Daniel, you will know him right away because he's the only one dressed in a Union uniform. While it is true that no one died during the first battle of the Civil War, Daniel passed away due to a freak accident when the Union troops were about to leave the fort. Just as the Union troops were giving their last 50-gun salute before evacuating the island, one of the cannons exploded. This freak explosion wounded five and killed Daniel. It was such a tragic and unexpected death that many think that poor Daniel does not know that he is dead. Shortly after Confederate troops began living on the island, they started reporting the sightings of a Union soldier walking around the fort. Some would even give chase to find nothing there. To this day, tourists have claimed to see a ghostly figure dressed in a Union uniform wandering around the grounds. Some even say that when you see Daniel, you can also smell fresh gunpowder and smoke. Others have reported just smelling this odor briefly while touring the site, and it disappears as quickly as it came. In the spring of 2015, one visitor was on the island as one of the last tour groups. The sun was just setting when the visitor claimed to see a Union soldier emerge out of the shadows and solemnly saluted the flag before vanishing. People visiting have also reported feeling of great uneasiness or sadness. Ghostly Confederate soldiers have been seen walking around, and hearing voices and footsteps following behind you to turn around and see nothing there is very common. Perhaps the most spooky thing is many people have reported to hear the sound of a distant battle and cannon fire, marching footsteps, echoing yells of commands, drums, and bugle calls. As people stop and look around to see where that sound is coming from, it fades away. The ghosts of Fort Sumner might be trying to remind us all that history should never be forgotten, because if we do, we are doomed to repeat it. Charleston, South Carolina is a place that I definitely want to visit someday, and it went on my bucket list. From its historic districts to its modern growth and understanding, the city really does seem to have a vibe about it that clearly some departed souls did not want to leave behind. Thank you all so much for joining me for today's episode. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I also hope that my show inspires you to visit your local historic locations. From local museums to major historic landmarks, there are so many wonderful places to learn and explore all over the world. My 2024 New Year's resolution was to explore more historic places, and I will definitely be doing that this year. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. I hope that you guys have a fantastic next couple of weeks, and I will see you guys back here really soon on a new episode of Historically Haunted. Don't forget to follow me on social media, check out my website, sign up for my newsletter. All that stuff is down below in the show notes, and if you want to learn more history, please check out all of my sources down below. Also, there's some ghost stories that I didn't have time to cover in today's episode. Thank you all so so much for your support of the show. I know that I'm a slower podcaster because it takes me so long to type up everything and then record it. If you're new here, I'm dyslexic, so that's why it takes me so long, but I still love doing this. No matter how slow I am, I will continue to be making these episodes for as long as possible. Thanks again for all your support. I hope to see you guys back here really soon at Historically Haunted. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.